It was a time in my life uh, that I was um, alone, I was broke, uh, and pretty well devastated. And I never will forget uh, driving, I was in Texas, I was driving down the Interstate 35, heading south out of Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, just praying to God, say, God, I don't know what's, what's going on in my life. Um, and and I, first thing I said, well, Lord, I need a job. I'm broke. Uh, all my life I had prepared for ministry. And the church that I had grown up in uh, pretty well said they didn't really uh, want me to be a part of ministry because I was divorced. Uh, and it was like everything I'd prepared for was over. And so I just prayed and said, Lord, I need a job. That was the first thing that came to my mind. And, and I, I was driving, and I looked over to my left, and there's this huge lumber company called Fort Worth Lumber Company, just south of Fort Worth. And uh, I was driving by, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit said, pull in and apply for a job. And I thought, well, Lord, I don't know anything about the lumber company, I, you know, uh, I'm, so I just said, okay, I don't have anything to lose. I pulled in there, I uh, walked up, walked in there, and walked in the office, and I said, I'd like to apply for a job. They said, okay, fill this out. I filled it out, and then he said, well, wait here if you would. And I thought, well, that's strange. I said, okay, I'll wait here, and the owner of the company came out. And he walked out, and he shook my hand, and he said, I see here on your application, we happen to be looking for a few guys. He said, but I see on your application, you have a degree in college, in music. What are you doing here? I said, good question. I said, mainly I need a job. I'll do anything. I've never worked at a lumber company, but hey, I'm a quick learner. I, I can learn whatever you tell me to do. So he said, okay, you're hired. I happened to have a commercial driver's license at the time. I'd driven in the oil field out in Midland, uh, driven a big 18-wheeler uh, oil rig where you drained uh, oil from these big oil tanks out in West Texas. So had a commercial driver's license, and he said, you're going to be a lumber truck driver. So I did. Uh, I drove, they'd load up the truck, and I'd drive the truck to a job site, and I'd dump the lumber, and uh, I'd go to the next job site. And I did that. And the, the boss pulled me in. And he said, listen, he said, I want you to work in every area of our company. I want you to work in the mill. I want you to work in the office. I want you to go out and, and help the, be one of the side inspectors where you help the uh, building contractor to know what to order. Uh, and so whatever he told me to do, I did it, and I did it the best of my ability. Uh, never been around that kind of stuff before. My dad was a jack of all trades, and he taught me kind of do a little of everything. But I really didn't know the building industry as a as a part. So it was a it was an eye opening experience. All the different areas, uh, the guys in the lumber yard, they started calling me preacher man because I didn't cuss. Um, that's the only reason I guess they called me preacher man because everybody else was cursing and and I, I wouldn't so. Uh, they call me preacher man. So one day I was doing all this and I thought, Lord, what in the world am I doing here? What are you doing? And there was no answer. And then a few weeks later, I met my sweet wife, Vicki, 
And uh, I've already told you the story. We met uh, in September of 76, 76, and we were married in January of 77, four months later. Uh, And we got involved. I was able to become a worship leader in a spirit-filled church there in Fort Worth, and one thing led to another. Uh, And I let go of the lumber company job, uh, and a year later, we found ourselves moving to Mississippi, Pompaville, Mississippi. And a little bit later, um, we ended up coming to a place called Homa and started the church uh, reluctantly. Uh, You know, I don't know if you know the story, but I was the associate pastor, worship leader at Storehouse Church up in Hattiesburg. And a group of people here in Homa asked me to start a church, and I wasn't real excited about that. And I said, well, I don't know about that. Um, I said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I said, I'll, I'll let me pray about it. And I told the Lord, it was one of these fleece things. You know, you uh, do the fleece and turn it over, you know. So I said, well, Lord, I'll come to Homa on one condition. And that is, um, I'm going to talk to my pastor, who was Clarence Matheny at the time at the Storehouse Church, and if he wants me to leave and come down here and start a church, and I'm going to call Brother uh, Nolan Akers, who was at Grace Christian Church. He's the church that I spoke at. And I said, if I'm going to call him and I'm going to ask him, it's his territory. He was the biggest church in town. Uh, It was a going and blowing and uh, doing a lot church. And I said, if he says, I think you ought to come to home and start a church. And if my pastor says, I think you ought to come to home and start a church, he said, only if they will agree and say that that's the only reason I'll come. Because I have real strong conviction. I don't believe in just going to a place and starting a church where they don't need a church. Because what you do is you just really hurt, end up hurting the churches around there. I wanted to start a church where they needed a church. So I never will forget, I talked to my pastor, Clarence, and I told him, I said, you don't think it's, it'd be a good thing to go to home? Yeah, I think it'd be great. Hallelujah. That's the Holy Ghost. That's the way he talked. And I said, okay. And I called Brother Nolan. I didn't know him real well, but I just said, Brother Nolan, I said, I'm thinking about coming down and starting a church. If you think that's not a good idea to come into your territory and start a church, I'm not coming. He thought a minute and he said, you know, I think it's a great idea. I think you ought to come. I was shocked. You know, what preacher wants some out-of-town guy coming in and starting another church? So we came. And I think back to my days at Fort Worth Lumber Company. Because from the day we started the church, we built for the next 30 years. One building after the other. And all the things that I learned in building, God put it into practice And it became valuable. And I want to say to you right now, the things that God has you going through, you don't really know at this time, but God prepares you so he can use you. You may be at a part in your life, place in your life, where you say, Lord, what is going on? And it seems like it's not what you thought you were going to do. It it didn't seem like that's what you were planning on doing, and things haven't worked out just right. I just want to say to you, be faithful in the small areas. Do the very best 
that you can do. It's amazing what ongoing consistency will do because it prepares for something greater. I have just a short video example of this. This is one of the people showed this to me. I thought it was a great example of ongoing consistency. Watch this. One of the best ways I've ever heard to get your head around what compound interest looks like is if you could imagine uh, a series of dominoes that increased in size. And I, I wish I could show you what that looks like. Oh, wait. There they are. Okay, yeah. So if you took a domino, but th- that, one's, that one's too big. If you started out with a tiny little domino, uh, one that is only five millimeters tall and only one millimeter thick, and then you took... 12 more dominoes, so that your 13 dominoes uh, were to grow one and a half times consistently every single revolution. Every domino, one and a half times taller. By the 13th domino, you would increase in size all the way to the point where your last one is a meter tall and weighs 100 pounds. That is compound interest. That is exponential growth. The problem for so many of us is ain't nobody got time for that. (laughs) We've made it to March so many times, and we're just discouraged. Why? Because we want to be over here. We want to go, here we go, from here to there. I just want to change. I don't get it. I just tried that. I read the Bible one time. I wasn't a man of God overnight. You should see yourself. It's so frustrating. Isn't there a pill I can take? Isn't there, isn't there some hot water I can pour on it? Isn't there something I can buy on Amazon? Can't, why can't I just be a great husband? Is there a marriage conference I could go to? Nah, you just got to do the dishes and quit being a jerk. I know, but I tried, I tried that once, and it didn't work. And, and I just don't understand. And I, I tried saving. It wasn't for me. You don't understand my boss. He's just... Oh, he didn't tell you how special you were like your mom did and give you a reward for doing nothing? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, so see, here's the thing. You can't jump from here to here without going through here. And this is the next five years of your life if you want to get to this. Now, this thing is so small, I got to use tweezers to even get it into place. But if we start small and realize the power of ongoing consistency, here is what can happen for you. I rest my case. Power of ongoing consistency. Doing the small things consistently. Even though you don't understand how it's going to lead to what you want, right? You have this idea of what you would like to happen in your life. But as he said, we want the big things to happen now. But what I've learned is that when you're faithful in the small things... Do what God has opened up for you to do. 
and do it to the greatest of your ability. Even though it's maybe not what you dreamed in your vision that you wanted to do. It's what God has for you to do. Because what God is doing is He's preparing you. He puts you in places in such a way that He prepares you for the future. I didn't realize what God was going to do in my life. And I could have resisted. But yet, I sensed that the Lord was just saying, do what I've told you to do. You'll understand later on. And now, from this side, I see exactly what God was up to. And God is up to the same thing in your life. And I want to talk to you about a man in the Bible. He's not a king. He's a man named Nehemiah. One of my favorite characters in the Bible. Historically, he is the real person who really lived in this time. And he is a man that was faithful in the small things. How do we know that? Well, when we pick up in chapter 1, we find that Nehemiah was a cupbearer for the king of Persia. And around 442 or 443 B.C. How do you become a cupbearer? Well, first of all, a cupbearer is the guy that tests all the things that the king would drink. Because the favorite way to get rid of a king is to poison him. And so, if you are the cupbearer, you have to taste everything before the king drinks it. And you know, the king has to trust you implicitly with his life. And you also run the risk of dying (laughs) if somebody tries to poison the king. So the king and Nehemiah have developed a great relationship. He obviously respects him. Now, Nehemiah is a Jew. He is a transplant from Jerusalem into this foreign land of of Persia or Iran. And one day, Nehemiah asked one of his friends that had been to Jerusalem recently, and he said, what's it like? What's going on? I want to know what's going on in my hometown. What's it like? How are the people going? How's Jerusalem doing? And you read it in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. It says, They said to me, things are not going well for those who return from the providence of Judah to the providence of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. Zerubbabel had gone back and rebuilt the temple. But there was no wall. And you see, the wall was what protected from the enemy. And because there was no wall around Jerusalem, then they couldn't enjoy the temple. They couldn't worship God because at any point the enemy could come in and attack them. They had no covering, no protection. Any city that was not walled was a city under constant attack. And so although they had the temple rebuilt, 
the wall was not built. And this was a real practical need that they had. They needed to have that wall. Everybody recognized that they needed a wall. Everybody that had gone back recognized that they needed a wall. But no one did anything. It takes sometimes somebody who's a doer. Somebody who will be obedient to God. And so the story, if you read it, Nehemiah 1, he goes into the king. He gives him the cup. And the king notices, he says, Nehemiah, notice you're sad. Uh, Your face is downcast. You've got a problem. I know you're not sick, so what's going on? And he basically says, well, king, if you don't mind, I just have to tell you the truth. The truth is, how can I be happy and, and, and my countenance be good when my people and Jerusalem are under great attack because the walls are down and the gates have been burned. They have no protection. And here's the amazing thing. Now the king of Persia at this time, Arxataxus, he, he is basically the most important, valuable, powerful, and influential man in the world at that time. And he looks at Nehemiah, and I'm still amazed that he did this. He said, Nehemiah, whatever you need, I'll give it to you. Whatever you want to go get the job done, I'll supply the, the men, the guards, the brick, the stonemasons, the timber, the lumber, whatever it is, supplies, money, I'll give it to you. You go And build that wall. He goes from being cupbearer to master builder in a moment's notice. I love it. Just because he shared his heart with the king. And God, it tells us, and when he says that, it says, God gave Nehemiah favor with the king. I I don't have to see it. I, I understand it. He loved Nehemiah. He cared about him. And so he just gave him a blank check, said, whatever you need, buddy, you've got it. Nehemiah goes, and he begins, at first I love the way he scouts out the place, doesn't tell anybody what he's there for, doesn't tell anybody what he's going to do, and then finally he decides what he needs to do, he assesses the damage, and looks at what he needs to do, and what he's going to need, and he knows what he's going to order, and the king will supply it. And he stands up to all the people. He gathers them together and says, we're going to rebuild this wall. We are going to put this wall back together. God will help us. He will fight with us. He will fight for us. He will help us. Well, as soon as they do that, Sanballat and Tobiah and Gershom, three enemies of God, decide they're going to oppose this rebuilding of the wall. And I just want you to see this. Whenever you take a step toward God, the enemy is right there to oppose you. If you take a step toward God, you weren't going to church, and all of a sudden you start going to church, you are going to get opposed. All hell is going to break loose, literally, to try and keep you away from the church. Just as that wall was protection around Jerusalem, the church 
is God's protection for His people. And God knows that we need that covering and protection. We need that protection for for one another and from one another. And the enemy hates that. And what I want to see, what I want us all to see here, I see five areas. First, I see the two first things, and that is we see the way the enemy attacks. And I, I, I believe we can learn. This, this series is God's greater story. I believe God has a greater story than Nehemiah building a wall. God has a word to us that he wants to speak to us about how we can be aware of what the enemy is up to and what he's doing. And then how to respond to what the enemy is doing so that we can have the wall built, the spiritual wall in our life. And we can be a part of the church and we can be busy about building the kingdom of God. The very first thing I see here, and that is the enemy will use threats and ridicule against us. Look, if you would, to Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're going to read verse 19 and 20. He says this, But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Gershom, uh, the Arab, heard our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They asked. And I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall. But you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Israel. And then we see a second threat in chapter 4, verse 1, 2, and 3. Let's look at this. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews. So there, you see, the enemy's going to mock us. He's going to ridicule us. Saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build a wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stone from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite who was standing beside him said, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked on top of it. What a clear picture of how the enemy will mock you ridicule you. If you take a step toward God, the enemy is going to mock you. And let's put this in today, today's area. You make a decision to walk away and say, you know, I don't really want to have anything to do with Mardi Gras. I just don't want to have anything to do with it. Got better things to do in your life? And you just say, you know, a lot of this stuff is not godly stuff going on, so I just want to have it. You know, your, your friends are going to ridicule you. They're going to mock you. Look what it says in First Peter chapter 4, very similar. It says, you've had enough in the past of these evil things that godless people enjoy. Their immorality and their lust, their feasting and drunkenness. And wild parties, what does that sound like? Sound just like Mardi Gras. And their terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things. So, what do they do? They're going to slander you. So, folks, do not be surprised if you take a stand for righteousness. If there's a party going on at, at work, and you know that party, they're going to be drinking, there be a, all kinds of wild stuff is going to be on and, uh, going on, and, and you say, you know, I'm not coming. 
Don't be surprised when they slander you. Don't be surprised when they make fun of you. Oh, you think you're holier than thou? You think you're just somebody special? They will use all kinds of slander. You see, the enemy has not changed his tactics in thousands of years. He used ridicule for Nehemiah's day. They used ridicule when, for, when Peter wrote this, and the enemy's still using ridicule. And I just want to encourage you folks, have your eyes open, your ears open to understand That the enemy will try all kinds of things to ridicule you and threaten you and slander you. To get you to go back to your old ways. Even if you decide, you know, I'm not going to do drugs anymore. I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm going to lay down cigarettes. I'm not going to, I don't want that stuff in my life. If you just make a simple decision like that, it's amazing how the enemy wants to slander you. And that's his first level of attack. Slander, ridicule, threats, make fun of you. But be on your guard. Amen? Second thing I see here. The enemy will use discouragement against you. Let's see what happens now. It's in Nehemiah chapter 4, and we're going to read from 6 to 12. 6 to 12, at last the wall was completed to half its height. So it's half finished around the entire city. For the people had worked with enthusiasm. You get the picture? Boy, they're busy, they're going great, they're working hard, they have enthusiasm. Look what happens. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Now watch what happens. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers were getting tired. There's so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build a wall by ourselves. Do you find this amazing? When they started, they had a huge pile of rubble. And now they've got half as much rubble as they had before. But now that the enemy has made threats to attack them, now all of a sudden they're noticing how much rubble's there. They weren't discouraged until the enemy made plans to attack them. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them all and end their work. Now, watch verse 12. This is interesting. The Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. Did you catch that? These were Jews. Now, these were not the enemy. These were their brothers. These were their brothers and sisters. But where did they live? They lived near the enemy. And because of that, they were constantly listening to the lies of the enemy. Folks, I just want to warn you. You need to be careful who you listen to. You need to be careful who you can't buy. You need to be careful who your friends are. 
Because if you live near and stay near those who hate God, and you listen to their constant dribble about how God is going to be defeated and how silly it is to serve God and how you shouldn't go to church and you shouldn't study the Word of God and how prayer is not effective. If you listen to that stuff all the time, it's amazing. Not only will you believe it, but you will go and spread that to other people. You see, it's not just that they lived near the enemy and heard this stuff and believed it, but they passed it on. And now what is happening? The entire camp. They're half finished. The wall is halfway up. But now, because of threats and because of some of their own brothers are trying to discourage them. They all are thinking about how hard this is going to be and how there's so much rubble. And I just don't think we can do that. And I just want to encourage you today. Do not let the enemy discourage you. I don't care how far you've come or how far you need to go in your spiritual walk with God. Thank God for the progress you've made. And thank God that he will help you to finish what he started in your life. He, has, he who has done a good work in you will finish that which you started in you. God will help you. God will be with you. Do not listen to the lies of the enemy. And don't listen. You know, and here's the thing. The enemy will use other Christians to discourage you. We're not talking about the ungodly. We're not talking about the lost. We're talking about sometimes the enemy will use other Christians To put lies, discouragement, feelings of you can't do it. You have to be wise about who you listen to and what they're saying. And when you sense and pick up the fact, this is just a lie of the enemy. They're listening to the enemy and they're just spreading it. You need to learn to not listen to that. So let's think of the positive things that Nehemiah did now in response to the threats and the ridicule, and now the attack and the discouragement. Let's see, what does Nehemiah do? What does he respond? How does he respond to this? I think here is the bigger story that God wants us to respond in the same way that Nehemiah taught his people to respond to all these threats. Number three, our response must be to work and pray. The prayer, it's not just prayer, it's you have to do the work of God, you have to be busy about the kingdom of God, and you need to be involved in prayer, because it takes both. And this is where, this is the part I love about Nehemiah. He's a practical, get-or-done guy. You know, we have figured out, my wife is uh, from perfect country, and I'm from get-or-done country. That's true. And we've learned to you know, melt these things together and get along. And, and, but there's sometimes I just get something done and I say, okay, it's done. Hey, I think it looks good. And she'll look at it and say, no, no, it's not done right. And I just want to say, can't you just let this go? And men, if you have a wife who's from perfect country and you're from get her done country, then just go ahead and do what she says. It's a whole lot easier. 
You can fight all your life and not get anywhere. So just smile and say, okay, let's do it. Let's do it right here. So let's see what Nehemiah did. I love this. It's in Nehemiah 4. We're going to read all the way from 13 to 18. This is working and praying because I see, see the, the weapons is the uh, sword of the spirit here. Let's pick up verse 13. So I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families, armed with swords and spears and bows. Then I looked over the situation. I called together the nobles and rest of the people and said to them, Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord, who is great and glorious. And fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your home. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans, that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. But from then on, only half of my men worked while the other half stood guard with spears and shields and boats and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and the other hand holding a weapon. All the builders had a sword belted to their side, and the trumpeter stayed with me to sound the alarm. This is a guy who said, we're not going to uh, do, uh, you know, stop the work so we can fight, because you might sit there and be ready to fight, and the enemy never shows up, and so no work gets done. So what are we going to do? We're going to work and be ready to fight, and for us, The bigger implication is that we pray. We have spiritual weapons of our warfare, mighty through God, through the pulling down of strongholds, pulling down those high things. So we do the work of God. We do the practical things that God has for us to do, but we also pray. And our most powerful weapons are the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God and prayer. Speaking and corporate prayer, praying together, praying with your brothers and sisters in Christ, praying together, agreeing in prayer, coming to an understanding of how to pray, and then praying together. Husbands and wives praying together, couples praying together, friends praying together, getting together with your cell group and praying together. It is powerful, but you can't just pray. You've also got to go on with life and do the things that you've got to do. The work has to be done. So you've got to work and pray. And then the next thing I see here, and that is we have to be, our response has to be to fight for one another. We've got to be concerned about one another. Look, if you would, we're going to go from 19 to 23. It shows us this. Then I explained to the nobles and officials and all the people The work is very spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. When you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to wherever it's sounding. Then our God will fight for us. We worked early and late from sunrise to sunset, and half the men were always on guard. I also told everyone living outside the wall to stay in Jerusalem. That way they and their servants could help guard duty at night and work during the day. Verse 23, during this, this time, none of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor the guards who were with me, ever took off our clothes. This is a stinky group of workers. 
We carried our weapons with us at all times, even when we went for water. I mean, this guy's focused. From early in the morning to late at night, he worked. They worked. And what I see there is that, you know, I, I thought about that verse 19 there. How powerful that is. That, you notice what it says. It says, the work is very spread out. And we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Boy, when I read that, I thought, boy, is that a picture of the church today? We are so isolated. We've got our cell phones and iPads and we have communication, uh, unbelievable communication abilities. But the church is so isolated. We're so isolated. And I just want to encourage you. It was always God's plan for us not to be isolated. That's one of the reasons we have the local church. We can be a part of one another. We can fight for one another. And I love the way he said, when you hear the trumpet sounding, you run to that place where you hear the trumpet. That way you can help fight for those where the enemy is attacking. We fight for one another. If somebody, a brother or sister in Christ is under attack, you run to them and you want to protect them. You want to pray for them. You want to encourage them. We rush to the side of those who are hurting. Don't be that isolated person. You know, you can stay at home. You can, you can just do your own thing. Say, well, it doesn't, it doesn't involve me. The enemy's not attacking me, so I'm just going to let it go. But that's not the plan. That's not the way God would have it. Here is a clear picture of how he wants us rushing to the aid of those who are under attack. So I want to encourage you. Be someone who has ears to hear. Listen for that trumpet. When you hear someone's under attack, when you hear that someone is, is sick, when, when they're under a spiritual attack or physical attack, be someone who would rush to their side and fight for them. Fight with them. Be with them and encourage them. You can't, we cannot fight this alone. God will fight for us. Isn't that what he said? If you'll rush to the aid, God will fight with us. God will help us. He will encourage us and strengthen us. But we have to be willing to rush to one another's side because we are so isolated and separated from one another. I encourage you, be willing to fight for one another. And then the last thing I see here, Our response must be to reject every lie of the enemy. We're about to read when the wall has been completed, but the gates are not quite up. Let's see what happens. Has the enemy given up? No. He's still looking to work. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained. Though we had not yet set up the doors in the gates. So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me. Asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But I realized they were plotting to harm me. So that's when the enemy does that, you need to say, oh no. 
Oh no, I ain't going. I realized they were plotting to harm me. So I replied by sending this message to them. I'm engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Boy, what a great response. I don't have time for you. I am involved in building the kingdom of God. I'm not about to walk into the trap of the enemy. Four times they sent the same message. Boy, they persistent. The enemy's persistent. And each time I gave the same reply. So they decided to change their tactics. The fifth time, Sanballat's servant came with an open letter in his hand. And this is what it said. L- listen to this. There is a rumor among the surrounding nations, and Geshem tells me it's true. I know for a fact this is true, because Geshem told me. Y'all heard this. So-and-so told me, I know it's true. And that you and the Jews are planning to rebel, and that's why you're building this wall. According to his report, you plan to be their king. Verse 7. He also reports that you have appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim about you. Look, there's a king in Judah. You can be very sure this report will get back to the king. So, I suggest that you come and talk it over with me. I love Nehemiah's response. He's a no-nonsense guy. I replied, there's no truth in any part of your story. This is all fake news. You're making this whole thing up. Man, you, you need to be able to recognize fake news when it's fake news. That's just the truth. And Nehemiah says, there's not a shred of evidence. There's no truth to this in any way. Now, they've told him four times, sent the same message, I want you to come out and meet with me. He knows if he goes, he'll be attacked. He'll be killed. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to get him out. The plains of Ono were about 40 miles away and kind of in the middle of nowhere. Get him out there by himself with very little protection. They're going to have people out there. They're going to kill him. He knows that. And so four times it didn't work. Then they come up and they make up this rumor. And I just want to tell you, folks, just because someone says to you, I have this rumor that I know is true, that's a good sign it's not true. First of all, if it's a rumor, they shouldn't be spreading it anywhere. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy. The enemy will spread lies and rumors and innuendos and, oh, I think this might be true. Don't read every, don't believe everything you read on Facebook. Don't believe it just because Snopes says it. It is amazing to me how things can be manipulated, twisted, changed. You have to understand the leftists, the quote progressives, and the liberal left are good at twisting the truth. And turning it into a lie so that God's people might believe that lie. We've got to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. But you can't fall 
for the lies of the enemy. Have your eyes wide open. Your spiritual ears wide open. And when the, in, when the enemy tries to attack you or tries to set up a, a, a situation that's really a trap for you, be wise. Pray. Seek the Holy Spirit's wisdom. The Holy Spirit will tell you, stay away from that. Don't go there. That's nothing but a tra- trap. That's nothing but the enemy's trap. I want to encourage you folks. That God has good plans for your life. Satan seeks to destroy your life. Looking all the way back at the first chapter. His description. The walls are burned. The gates are down and burned. They have no protection. They're wide open to the enemy. When you read that. That's a picture of some of you today. You have no protection. You have no wall around you. You have no covering. The enemy can come right in and bring destruction in your life. And some of you are tired of the enemy's attacks. Some of you have said, Lord, how much? And the Lord says, you need to have that wall around you. You need to stop being so isolated and learn to be a part of the body of Christ. He wants you to build that spiritual wall around your life. He wants you to be a part of the local church, this local church. This is a solid place where the Word of God is going to be taught. You need to make this your home. I want to encourage you today. If you don't know Jesus, you really are unprotected. You really are wide open to the enemy. It's hard enough being a believer. But at least as a believer... In Christ, we have the body of Christ to help us. But if you're lost today, and you don't know Jesus, and you never submitted your life to the Lordship of Jesus, then Satan has a crosshair on your life. And you will be under constant attack. I'm going to ask you if you would to bow your head just for a moment. I'd like to ask you, No, I'm going to change that. I'd like for you to ask yourself, where are you in building this wall? Are you busy about building the spiritual wall in your life? Are you busy about building the kingdom of God? Or are you one of those that would say, Everything's devastated and burned. I'm under great distress. I'm under great attack. Jesus, I need you. I need you. Every person in this room 
you need Jesus. It all starts with making Jesus Lord of your life. If you're here today and you've never taken that step, and it is an, an initial step, but if you've never taken this, this is where it all starts. This is where it begins. You've got to make Him Lord of your life. You believe in your heart. You confess Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. You can be born again. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can begin to build that spiritual wall in your life. If you hear this morning, and you know you need Jesus, you need Jesus to come into your life and be your Lord, I'm going to ask you if you would just to slip up your hand. You hear this morning, and you know you need Jesus. Yes, one, two, yes, three. Several people raise their hand. Yes. Anybody else? Thank you. Yes. Thank you, young lady. This is what I want us to do. I'm going to ask us if everyone would stand to their feet. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to sing one of the songs we sung earlier. And as we sing, I want you to make your way down to the front. I want you to come right here, stand right in front of me. I want to pray with you. I want you to come and ask Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life. I want you to start over again and turn your life over to Jesus. Would you come? We're going to sing. Several of you raise your hand. Would you make your way down to the front? Would you come? Yes. Thank you. Would you come? Several of you came. Yes. Would you come? Yes. He has Don't be afraid. Come on, yeah. Hey, one of our A4 guys, thank you for coming, young man. Anybody else? Just make your way down to the front. Don't be ashamed. There you go. Hey, young man. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming. Anybody else? Come on. Make your way to the front. I want to pray with you. Need to make the step in your life to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. It's the most important decision of your entire life because it determines heaven or hell, it determines everything in your life. Anybody else? I'm not going to belabor it. Yes. Anybody else? Come on. Thank you for coming. You know, when you give your heart to Jesus, it doesn't mean your life is perfect. It doesn't mean that all problems go away. But it does mean that Jesus Christ comes into your heart and makes you a brand new person. Gives you a brand new life. Thank you. It means that you get a new heart. And now all of a sudden... God can begin to work in you. And here's the great thing. As you pray this prayer, I'm going to pray a prayer with these people down here. When you pray this prayer, your sins are forgiven. Here's the amazing thing. It's just washed away, cleansed away. All your sin, everything you've done is washed whiter than snow. And you begin afresh and new in your life. You know, there's a part of us that we want to earn that, but we can't earn it. It's a free gift of salvation. If you think you can earn it, you can't have it. 
But if you'll come as a child and say, Lord, I can't earn it, but I, I desire your life, then it can be yours. I'm going to pray with you. If you would, pray out loud with me. We're just going to ask Jesus Christ to come into your life, forgive you of your sin. And here's what the Word of God says. It says that He takes out the old heart, the old heart of stone, and He brings you and gives you a new heart. So when we pray, God's going to do a heart transplant, give you a new heart, forgive you of all of your sin, and you begin a brand new life. It's the most amazing offer in all of life that God wants to give you. It's not becoming a part of a church. It's not anything like religion. It's a relationship with Jesus. It's amazing what God will do in your life. So this is what I'm going to ask you to do. If you just don't mind just raising your hands and pray with me. Pray out loud with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I've messed up my life. I give you my life, Lord. I trust in the blood of Jesus as forgiveness of my sin. Come into my heart, Lord. Make me a brand new person. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Give me that new heart, Lord. Fill me with your spirit. And cause me to walk in your ways, Lord. And help me, Lord, to build that spiritual wall in my life. That I will be protected from the enemy. Teach me, Lord, every day to walk with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.